The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Joyful greetings, Fathom Church. I'm Patrick Fisher, and I am not the pastor of this church. I am just a fellow church member looking to serve you guys today by bringing the word. You know, my brother-in-law, he tells me this story of how Eskimos hunt for wolves. You see, first, they kill a baby seal because killing a baby seal is like a thousand times easier than killing a wolf. And then they get a razor sharp knife and they begin coating the knife in the baby seal's blood. Then they let it freeze and they coat it again. They let it freeze, coat it again. And they do this over and over and over again until there's so many layers of blood that you can no longer see the blade of the knife. They turn that deadly knife into a delicious, juicy blood popsicle. Then they go out into the wilderness where wolves might roam and they place the knife into the ground with the hilt buried and the edge of the knife sticking upward. And they leave. And eventually a wolf will come by and smell the frozen blood from the distance. He'll follow the scent and see the delicious looking thing and he'll begin to lick. And he'll enjoy every taste as he licks through the layers of blood, getting closer and closer to the blade. It's kind of like a Tootsie Pop. How many licks does it, get, does it take to get to the center? And finally, he gets to the razor sharp edge of the knife. And you would think, okay, once he feels the blade, he's gonna stop licking. But what he doesn't realize is that His tongue has grown numb because of the cold. He cannot feel the blade cutting his very own tongue. And he doesn't realize the fresh new blood gushing into his mouth is his very own. It's at this point, the wolf begins to feel himself growing weak. And so he tries to eat more blood to gain strength, but it's not helping. And eventually he bleeds out and dies. And that's how Eskimos hunt for wolves. Now, what is the point slash moral of that story? Well, sin is just like that blood knife popsicle. It smells good. It looks good, even tastes good, but it will end up ruining you. And it's not a quick process. These things take time. First, they numb you. Then they draw you in deeper and deeper, just like the blood popsicle until it's too late. And that's one of the reasons why God takes sin very seriously and why we as the people of God take sin seriously too. You see, sin isn't something you mess around with and it's not something you just tolerate. Chris, he set this up last week, the dangers of unrepentant sin how it affects our witness, ourselves, and our community. And now it's my job to continue where he left off in the passage last week, to get into the practical details. And so if you didn't watch last week's message, it's kind of like watching Avengers Endgame without having watching Avengers Affinity Wars. You'll be a little lost at first, missing some of the important context and details. You'd be like, who's that like? purple guy that's snapping his fingers. But eventually you'll still understand the main points. 
So, how does God want us to take sin seriously as his people, as his church? Because this message is for those who belong to the church. Like, if you're non-Christian and you're tuning into this and you're watching this, like, this doesn't apply to you, right? And I hope you would understand, man, we who believe that the Bible, we who believe that God is real, why we take this seriously, why we are, quote unquote, so strict about these things called sin. I want to break down what it looks like and what it doesn't look like, both for how we interact with those outside of the church and those inside of the church. So let's get to it. Verses 9 to 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You see, the people in Corinth had misunderstood a letter that Paul had sent prior to this letter. They had thought that Paul wanted them to disassociate with not only sexually immoral people, outside of the church, but pretty much every other type of sinful person out there. They thought that was the right thing to do. They thought that was the right way to take sin seriously. And here is Paul lovingly correcting them, saying, no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant by holiness. That's not what I meant by setting yourselves apart. Because if you set yourselves apart like that, you would have to take yourself from the world entirely. And we are supposed to be in the world while not of the world and not out of the world. We are supposed to be lights spread out into the darkness, not lights huddled together, hidden in some bunker. Yet, how many churches, how many Christians make the same mistake the Corinthians did, where they avoid people outside of the church because of their sins? You know, you know what other group of people avoided the sinners outside of their church? The Pharisees. They were afraid that if they associated with those type of people, their sin would rub off on them. They would become impure and they would go to hell. Man, the Pharisees, they were practicing social distancing before we did. But this isn't biblical because if we look at the Bible, right? If we see... What did Jesus do when he was on the earth? Who was the people that he surrounded himself with? Who was the people he spent time with? Jesus, he spent time with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the sinful outcast, to the point where people talked smack about him because of it. And so Jesus did the opposite of what the church in Corinth wrongly thought. He didn't avoid sinners but rather he connected and he engaged with them. Jesus was a friend of sinners, not because he winked at sin, ignored sin, or enjoyed lighthearted revelry with those who engage in immorality. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners. Kevin DeYoung. You see, Jesus did not come for the perfect. He came for the imperfect. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. 
And this is how Jesus took sin seriously. He didn't run away from the world in fear of their sins, but he went, bravely went and embraced it with love. And I know the idea of embracing one uh, other people right now in, the, in these weird times, in these coronavirus times, seems really weird and off, uh, especially if you haven't interacted with anyone outside of your house in a while. But you know, th- this time away from people has kind of, ch- and even prepping for this message, has challenged me to evaluate my relationships. It's led me to ask, man, who have been the people that I've reached out to and cared for in these difficult times? How many of them were just fellow Christians? It challenges me to be more intentional with who I text, with who I call, with who I Zoom. And I think about, man, when all this quarantine stuff is over, what might God be calling, calling you to do? Maybe it means going outside of the church. Maybe it means going outside of the comforts of the suburbs. Because isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus left the comforts of heaven to go into the sinful, messed up world and die on a cross in order that he might save sinners. If we are to take sin seriously, we ought to do what Jesus did. Love those outside of the church. Love those who don't believe what we believe. Love those who don't look like us, sound like us, or behave like us. We are to be in the world. And so after clarifying what the Corinthians misunderstood, Paul goes back to his main point in verses 11 to 13. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church for whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay. So really quick recap of the context from last week. What's going on in Corinthians is there's a guy in the church and he's calling himself a Christian. He claims to believe in Jesus and the Bible. He is part of the church and he is in unrepentant sin. He's taken his father's wife, incest. And look, there are times when we will struggle poorly with sin and there are times when we will struggle well, but this guy, he's not even struggling. He's not even putting up a fight. His sin is ongoing and it's obstinate. And so how is the church supposed to respond? Paul tells them, Paul instructs them not to even eat with such a one and to purge that evil person from among you. Now, this needs explaining, because what is this? Ultimately, this is known as church discipline. And I want to clarify that church discipline is not for those outside of the church. We don't practice church discipline for those outside of the church, but it's only for those inside of the church, because it's a family matter. You know, uh, one of the the things that happened uh, since the last time I preached was I now have a daughter. Her name is Shiloh. 
And so the perks of being a dad now is I have access to all these sermon illustrations uh, that use children and parenting and all that stuff. So I think about my daughter, Shiloh, and I think about her growing up. And if she said a bad word, right, if she said something that was mean or, you know, something she wasn't supposed to say, I won't give any examples, but it's my role as a father to discipline her. It's my role as a father to tell her she's wrong and to handle her rightly. But if I see your child saying some sort of bad word, like if I see Chris's child, uh, if I see Harper saying something bad, um, I could probably share that I think they shouldn't say that bad word. Um, But it's not my place to go up to them and discipline them. It's not my place to ground them, to wash her mouth out with soap. It would be weird if I tried to do that, wouldn't it? Why? Because I'm not Chris. I am not her father. I am not family to her. That's not my role. And so in the same way, we're not to judge those outside of the church. That's God's role. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't tell them what we believe sin is and isn't and why sin is dangerous. In fact, we should tell them what the Bible says about sin, but we can't discipline those who don't claim to be part of God's family. Paul says that not only can we discipline them, but that we should discipline fellow brothers and sisters in Christ if they are in sin. And he uses this word judge, right? He says we're to judge them. And I think judge has a very negative connotation. It's seen as like, dropping some sort of negative comment with this I'm better than you attitude and then leaving it and leaving it there. It's kind of like saying, oh, you're stupid. You made a mistake and then walking away. But the sense of judging Paul talks about here, I feel is really different. And I was really struggling to find like, man, what's a better word than judging? I couldn't find one, but I thought I'd explain it. I I think the essence of what Paul is saying in, in this word judge is he's saying it's, It's discerning the truth of where someone is at in order to accurately care and love them towards restoration, towards healing, towards being in a better place. It's a positive thing. It's, It's brother, this isn't the right thing to be doing, but let's work at this together and let's fix it. Big difference. This, this kind of judgment isn't a judgment that we as Christians should fear, but rather it's something that we should welcome. And it might sound odd to say this, but receiving church discipline is actually a perk. It's a benefit. It's a blessing of being a part of a church, of being a Christian. We judge those inside our church, not with our own authority, but ultimately with the authority of God, of his word. Next, church discipline is not about shaming. It's about restoring. And that's hard to see from this like passage because in this stage of church discipline that we're jumping into, Paul is like busting out the big guns. He's going to the final resort, excommunication. Paul expects them to remove this man from the church and forbids them from associating with him as long as he continues in this unrepentance while claiming that he's a Christian. 
As Chris preached last week, this isn't done lightly. And as I say today, this isn't done to shame, but this is done with the hope that this drastic measure, this tough love, this form of discipline would wake up this person, would show this person that he is under the delusion of sin and he is looking at a blood popsicle. And if he continues down this line, it is going to consume him and destroy him. And so sin, his sin is not to be taken lightly, nor is it to be tolerated, nor is it to be ignored. And so that's the final move of a church discipline, excommunication, hoping that it leads to restoration. What are some of the moves prior? I want to be practical and explicit of what this looks like, but I also don't want to get bogged down by all these details and disclaimers. I found myself like being able to say, well, there's these scenarios and these moments and this situation. I talked to Chris and both him and I agree that with things like this, they're often case by case. Different sins have different responses and severities on how they should be handled and, who they're, and who they, how they affect people. But the Bible, God's word, provides us a flow. It gives us a rhythm of how we as a church can respond when we see another brother or sister in Christ messing with sin, whether it be big or small. And th again, things aren't always black and white as we want them. They're not even just gray areas sometimes. I, I like to say that the world is in color because God is a God of color. And so it takes a lot of prayer. It takes reading the Bible. It takes the Holy Spirit to guide us with the wisdom in this messy, beautiful, yet broken world that we live in. So, yeah, what are the steps prior to excommunication? Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17 kind of reveal this to us. It says, look, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So what is this saying? It's saying, hey, if you see a brother or sister in sin, you need to talk to them personally. You need to care for them. And if they listen and they repent, boom, hallelujah, praise God. You have won them over. They are restored. But if they don't listen, then you bring in more people to help. Maybe it's an elder or maybe it's a, uh, a close brother or sister in Christ who has a, a better or good relationship with this person. And if they still refuse to listen, then you bring in the church. You bring in the whole family to know and to love. Again, not shame, but to love. And after all that, if they still don't listen, that's when you excommunicate. You treat them like an unbeliever who needs to be evangelized to, so that he doesn't stay in this delusion that he's okay, but that he would realize what he's consuming is going to destroy him. So here's a hypothetical. Just kind of help you see this more clearly. 
let's say, hypothetical, okay? Let's say I'm at the park and you just happen to be going for a walk. Maybe you're playing basketball, football, or maybe you're just trying to get some fresh air, uh, get outside of your house or apartments. And then you see me on a park bench. And not only am I not practicing social distancing, but I am making out with a woman that is not my wife, that is not Katie. The first thought probably going through your head is, man, Patrick is such an idiot. I don't know what you think after that, but think here, what's the most loving thing you can do for me in that moment? What's the most loving thing you can do for me seeing that I'm in sin? One, it's not forgetting that it never happened. Love does not look like letting a person indulge in their sin. Like, ah, uh, it's okay if he's licking that blood knife popsicle. It's making him happy. No, that's not love. That's not the way you would care for me and love me. I asked one of my closest brothers in Christ what he would do if this happened, if he saw this. And this is what he said. He said, you know, first I would let the moment pass, but then I would, I would hit you up later. I would ask you to get dinner or something. And then during dinner, I'll be straight up with you. I'll tell you that I saw you making out with another woman. And then I'm really sad and want to hear about how your relationship is with Katie. I would probably just want to see, man, how do you respond to this, all this stuff? Ideally, you would feel remorse and want to change. You would share what's really been affecting your relationship uh, and you and with Katie. And then, you, then I could keep you accountable. I could keep you accountable with speaking, for speaking to the girl and with Katie. And it also guide you and suggest you to speak with a mentor, a counselor, a pastor. Do not do this on your own. And I love this answer because you see, this shows that to take sin seriously within the church, it, it really means helping one another repent of our sins. It means being willing to talk with one another through it. It will take good judgment. It will take tough love. It'll take difficult conversations. It'll take time and energy and prayer and maybe even church discipline. I think we can learn from kind of like the extremes. The extreme, I think the extreme conservatives, they want to like out of fear, not talk about sin, right? And Extreme liberals want to make it okay, like super okay, make sin okay, not talk about the bad stuff about sin in order to talk about it. But I think we need to, we need to kind of find that balance of we need to be open about talking about our sins with one another. We can't be afraid of sharing sins with one another. We can't be afraid to confess that we struggle. We can't be afraid to share details, to invite others to walk with us in the nitty gritty. Too often we give generalizations. Too often we kind of just skirt around words, not really inviting people into what's deep down eating us alive or what's deep down we're being tempted with and struggling with. We need to make a space where we can talk about the seriousness of sin, not in, not in, not in a context of shame and not in a context of belittlement, but in a context of love and restoration and waging war on this thing that is evil and destructive. 
we need to be willing to put in the work in pursuing one another in accountability. And so my challenge for you as a church this week, you know, again, we're social distancing. And so use technology, Zoom with your small groups, text a brother or sister in Christ, and just see how they're doing. Ask them how sin is in their life. Be willing to share your own struggles. Don't be afraid to talk about these things. I pray that we as Fathom Church would do this well. Because too often churches turn loving discipline into an act of shaming. Too often, or on the other side, they they avoid it altogether in fear of man or some other reason. But love isn't afraid to call out evil and speak truth, even if that means stepping on some friend's toes. And this makes sense, right? This makes sense about how this is really love. Because if I said, man, I'm afraid to tell my friend to stop licking that bloody knife popsicle because I'm afraid it might ruin our friendship. What kind of love is that? Isn't that a selfish kind of love? Isn't that a love where I value the pleasures and approval that I'm getting from this friendship more than my friend's well-being and life? But gospel love puts their good above your own as, as it's willing to risk the friendship and say, because I love you, I need to tell you this. You need to stop licking that bloody knife popsicle. My disclaimer, again, is how you do this is important. You can't go around being all condescending and self-righteous. Otherwise, again, you'll be like the Pharisees. But you got to be wise with your words. You got to be humble. You got to be empathetic. You got to be patient. You got to be like Jesus. Moving past hypotheticals. I've been shown this type of love. I remember when my best friend back in California, his name is Tim. When Tim called me out on one of my biggest sins, and it wasn't sexual immorality, it was something a lot more subtle, but I would say it was just as dangerous if left unchecked and unrepented of. The sin that he called me out on was my pride. You see, we, we led youth group together at our old church And I remember one night when he talked to me about my pride and how it was starting to affect my leadership, how sometimes I would give these like BS answers instead of admitting that I didn't know something because I was afraid to look inadequate. And at that time, even though Tim spoke to me so well, even though he did everything right, even though he was gentle and empathetic and patient with me, you know what? I still hated him for it. I still despised him for calling me out on my sins. And even as he was speaking to me, I just wanted to counterattack and call him out on all his sins. Because if you know Tim, he has a lot more sins than I, I do. But looking back, looking back like years later, I am so grateful for this brother. I am so grateful that he loved me enough to tell me to stop messing around with this sin, to stop licking that bloody knife popsicle. Because he did that for my ultimate good. 
I wonder, you know, where I would be today if Tim didn't, didn't do that. If Tim didn't do this for me, I, I wonder how my pride might've grown and festered and consumed me. I pray that we as a church, we would take sin seriously. We wouldn't be afraid of this, but we would engage with one another. That's what it looks like to take sin seriously within the church. We need to love one another like this, and we need to learn to receive love like this. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're a God that saw us um, heading towards destruction. You're a God that saw us indulging in sin, turning away from you. And yet even while we are sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And you, you reveal these things that are wrong and you not only speak to us through your word, but you, sp- you give us this community, you give us this church that supports and challenges us, not just with this, not just with fluffy words, but with tough actions, with tough love. And so I, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I, I miss seeing their faces. I miss being in community with them. I, I pray for their holiness. I pray for them as they are fighting temptations. I pray for them that as they are waging war on sin. And I especially pray for those that are struggling with secret sins right now. I pray that my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ would know that they are not alone. And they don't have to fight this fight on their own that we, even though we may be apart, we're still there with them. Just as you are always with us. We love you, God, but you love us infinitely more. Help us to continue to take sin seriously. In your sweet, sweet name we pray. Amen.